Our first lesson from God's holy word this morning is drawn from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and beginning with the fourth verse and extending to the ninth verse. It is referring to the Israelites on their wandering in the desert. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is taken from uh, John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born the Spirit." Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. If you are a Protestant Christian, there is no doctrine more central to your faith, more precious than the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, there are some that are equally central, equally precious, justification by faith alone, that sort of thing, but there is none greater and none more precious than substitutionary atonement. The doctrine summarized is that mankind has sinned against a holy God. God is holy, perfect, righteous, and just, and a sin against a perfectly holy, righteous, and just God requires an infinite uh, repayment, which man can't make. Um, you have to have infinite worth that would repay such a debt, and man can't pay that. Man needs something greater than man and still man to be the payment, and that payment is made in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's made in the cross. Our Lord Christ pays the penalty for our sin. The sin of mankind receives a worthy punishment because it falls upon one who is infinitely worthy and can make the substitution. So Christ becomes the recipient for the wrath of God, which we are due justly. He takes our punishment. We receive what should be his, so a substitution is made. Life for death, death for life. This is the central Uh, doctrine of what's happening on the cross for a Protestant. We trust in Jesus Christ to be our payment. He takes what we deserve. We get what he deserves. There's a substitution. Almost every Protestant uh, that I've ever talked to loves C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of the most significant writers of the 20th century, Uh, Before I go on, if you're suspecting, I do love Lewis. I'm not meaning to really tear him down in what I'm about to say. But uh, it is kind of questionable whether C.S. Lewis held the doctrine of substitutionary atonement as I just described it. If you read Lewis on his own terms, 
Uh, this is what he has to say in one of his most beloved books, Mere Christianity. Now, before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of this dying was, the dying of Christ. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel, but Christ volunteered to be punished instead, so God let us off. That's a pretty decent summary of substitutionary atonement. Now, I admit that even this theory does not seem quite so immoral and silly as it used to. So now think about that line. Uh, This was what I was taught Christians believed. I considered it immoral and silly. I have had some progression in my thought to the point where it doesn't seem quite so immoral and silly as it used to. But that indicates that there is still some view that it is immoral and silly, although his thoughts are progressing. But that is not the point I want to make. What I came to see later that was that neither this theory nor another is Christianity. The central belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. So that is Lewis in his own terms, and Lewis uh, summarizes the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and says this is immoral and silly. Now, it's not quite as immoral and silly as it used to be to me, but it is. Uh, Christ makes us right with God somehow, but really, honestly, we're not agreed how that works. It does. There you have it. And yet, if you are a fan of Lewis and you've read many of his books, you've probably read what is his most famous book and what is his most beloved book, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there, in allegory, he presents... Uh, the cross under the image of the stone table and Aslan dying. And when you read that book, you read this. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic, asked the witch. Let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growling suddenly shriller, tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us? Tell you what is written on letters deep as a spear is long on the fire stones on the secret hill? Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea? You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. Oh, said Mr. Beaver, so that's how you came to imagine yourself a queen, because you were the emperor's hangman, I see. 
peace, Beaver, said Aslan with a very low growl. And so, continues the witch, that human creature is mine, his life is forfeit to me, his blood is my property. Come and take it then, said the bull with the man's head in a great bellowing voice. Fool, said the witch with a savage smile that was almost a snarl, do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. It is very true, said Aslan. I do not deny it. Protestants love C.S. Lewis, and if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that sounds very much like substitutionary atonement. Uh, the Pharisee the kid, the rebel, what's his name? You know, the bad guy, Turkish delights, Edmund, that's right. Uh, he's, he's lawfully the property of the witch. Uh, the witch has the right to kill him. Aslan gives his life to spare Edmund. Uh, sounds like substitutionary atonement. So how can Lewis say, you know, I, I don't really believe in this doctrine. I can summarize it, but I don't believe in it. It seems immoral and silly. And then he can write in beautiful terms this story of a substitution. What's, what's going on there? Well, I never really understood it until I began to kind of dig into uh, those various theories that Lewis uh, alluded to. And it turns out that Lewis does hold to a understanding of the cross that is slightly different, significantly different than substitutionary atonement. It's called Christus Victor, which in the Latin you can hear, Christ is the winner. Um, but it's also called ransom theory. And without doubt, Christ's death is called a ransom. He uses that term for his death. Many early church fathers held to this belief. And you can see it in Lewis's description in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you listen carefully. Edmund belongs to the witch. The witch has the right to a kill. The witch has been established lawfully, in fact that term is used, to be the one to take those who rebel. Uh, Aslan will die for Edmund, but he is dying to purchase Edmund from the witch who rightfully owns him. This theory holds that the death of Christ is a payment to the devil. The idea is that the devil rightfully owns the world. Uh, he has legitimate right, we could even use the term good, right to the world. And Christ pays him for the souls of the elect. He, he buys them from the devil. The early church fathers who held to this, and it wasn't all of them, it was only a minority of them, but there were a sizable minority, felt that the idea of God's wrath being thrown down on sinners was a very dark picture. And they didn't want to picture a wrathful God. God is love, as the Bible says. Um, so it has to be that somebody else has it in for mankind 
somebody that Christ is buying us from, and that's the devil. And it's kind of a bait and switch. If you read the early church fathers, uh, Christ gives his life for his elect, but the devil is kind of tricked by his humanity into swallowing his divinity. Christ goes to hell, the divine God, the infinite God, and he tricks the devil. He is able to overcome death. The way Lewis puts it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is there's a greater magic that the witch doesn't know anything about. Uh, Christ is able to rise from death. The devil is tricked. And they will refer to a couple passages in Scripture to make their case. One of them is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which, no one, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." So, you know, that certainly sounds like the devil has been outsmarted. The rulers of this world are demonic entities, and they would not have crucified Christ if they knew what was going to happen. Another one is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, and there we read in, in that simple verse, having disarmed principalities and powers... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that being the cross. So the early church fathers pointed to the idea that Christ had tricked the devil. Uh, He had overcome the devil with things the devil didn't know. The devil owned mankind. Christ bought mankind, but he didn't have to stay in the devil's clutches. Christ is victorious. He paid the ransom, but he came up out of hell. Well, Christ is victorious. He did trick the devil, and he did come out of hell. And if you hold this understanding of the atonement, it's likely you you can be a saved person understanding it this way. After all, your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for your sins, And theoretically, you're holding to this view because you want to have a very high view of God. You don't want to see God as angry and wrathful. You want to see God as nothing but love. Uh, Was Lewis a saved person? Well, you know, probably. I mean, I don't guard the gate to heaven or anything, but I suspect he was. But there is a, a serious question in this view, and that is the legitimacy of the devil, To hold to Christus Victor, you have to hold that God acknowledges the rule of the devil. When we read in, say, 1 John at the end of chapter 5, that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one, which we do, we have to understand that that is good and right and the way it should be. God set it up legitimately like this. Historically, Christians have said the devil may hold the world, but it's an occupation. It is a rebel, and Lewis used that term. It is the great rebel who has invaded. The devil has no legitimate rule. 
If the devil has a legitimate rule, then it literally is good that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Is that the way it's set up? Will we call the devil good? I have, I have some, some deep issue with that. That doesn't seem to be what the rest of Scripture describes the devil as. The devil is inherently evil. Um, God does not incorporate the devil as something good and right and positive. But that's where you have to go if you take Lewis's view. The biggest question, though, is does the Scripture actually teach that the devil rightly owns the world and a sacrifice is made to him? Or does the Scripture teach that the ransom is to somebody else? In this particular case, the ransom is to God, whose holy right and just nature we have offended with our sins did Christ pay his blood to the devil or did he pay it to God in our central passage in verse uh, 14 through 15 the Lord begins to, to talk to Nicodemus about what the cross is going to do now, Nicodemus probably doesn't recognize he's being talked to about the cross, but that is what's being talked about. Verse 14 and 15 read again, uh, one page over. Uh, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that, that's a reference to us being lifted up as a cr on the cross that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So when Jesus himself begins to say, okay, I'm going to define what's happening on my cross, he takes us back to our Old Testament reading. He takes us back to Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9, to the, to the, the Israelites wandering in the desert, and he says, what's going to happen when I'm lifted up is like what happened when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. So what happened when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent? What was going on there? Well, you had the people of God rebelling against God. They were in sin. What was their sin? Well, it was kind of a package, but it all fit together. They were greatly discouraged. And in Scripture, discouragement being the opposite of being courageous, uh, for a saint of God is actually sinful because you are in covenant with God. He is your Lord. He will empower you. He makes promises to you. Well, Numbers tells us right at the beginning they were greatly discouraged uh, and they were grumbling. They were grumbling against God. They were grumbling against God's servant, Moses. It is amazing in Scripture how sinful grumbling is presented. The, the book of Jude takes us back to what is likely one of the very first of God's prophets, takes us back to uh, Enoch, 
and says this in verse 14 through 16. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. The book is about false teachers. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. And we're going to hear that word again and again. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Being ungodly is the opposite of being with God or like God. And uh, Enoch has called these men ungodly, 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 ungodly. Why are they ungodly? Well, the next verse is, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they, swell, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. If you, if you go back to what Enoch is talking about, the, the people of the ancient world were grumbling against God. They were complaining against God. Um, God takes this very, very badly. God is the great Lord of glory. He has called a people to himself. He has given them every spiritual blessing in, in the heavenly places. And you're going to doubt his provision, you're going to grumble about his goodness, you are going to talk trash about him. I realize that's the Living Bible version, but that's what it is. You're going to talk down to God. You're going to, going to think badly of God. Well, that's what the people are doing. The, the, the called out assembly, God's visible church, are grumbling against God, grumbling against Moses. They have a lack of trust in him. Trust is a synonym for faith. They don't trust him. They are ungrateful. There is no water in this place. There's no real food in this place. What about all that manna that keeps falling from heaven? Well, this worthless bread, we don't want any more of that. So God is providing for them, and they are ungrateful. They're thinking about what they don't have or what they, what they do have. When you put this entire package together it kind of mirrors what original sin is. What is the original sin back in the beginning? Well, the serpent tempts Eve, uh, convinces her that God is not worthy of her trust, that God is not good, gets her to doubt his provision. She grumbles against what God has set up. There is no gratefulness. So what's going on with God's people here in the desert really kind of mirrors what was going on with Adam and Eve in the garden. This entire package of sinfulness is what man originally rebelled against God with in the beginning. And it brings the same kind of response. God sends a punishment upon them, and that punishment is fiery serpents. So who was the agent of the devil to tempt Eve in the original sin. It was a serpent. So they're sinning in exactly the same kind of way, and God sends a punishment upon them. It is fiery serpents. This is the wrath of God for their sin. Um, 
it's, it's hard not to see this as an allusion to the catalyst for original sin. But God also provides a means of grace, a means to be delivered from the wrath he has sent. The means is a mediator. The people go to Moses and say, we've sinned against you and against God. Uh, You pray for us. And that has to happen before grace comes. So Moses, uh, several times in Scripture, is a type and a symbol of mediation. He is that here. And God gives to Moses a pole, a stick. But it's made of bronze, and it's got a serpent on it. And God says, if you look to this pole, uh, your life will be given back to you. You won't die. This, by the way, is where the medical symbol comes from. If you've ever seen on a doctor's case or on an ambulance a staff that has a snake wrapped around it, uh, they're, they're not an evil wizard. It's referring to the bronze staff. It's healing. And... Uh, God gives the staff, and you look to it, and you don't die physically. It's not eternal life. Everyone who looks to the, to the stick will ultimately physically die. They may get old and die from old age, but they're going to die at some point. But they don't die from the wrath of God for this sin. God has given them a means of grace that they will be delivered. Jesus says, like the the pole is lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up. But unlike the pole, when you look to me on the cross, you will have eternal life. From this you can see which is the type and shadow and which is the major reality. Uh, You look to the pole, you lived on to see another day. You look to the cross, you live on eternally. God gives you eternal life. But nevertheless, there is a a direct connection between the two, and Christ makes it. Now, what was on the pole? God was very specific. He said there was going to be something that should be on the pole. It was made for the pole. It was a serpent. What were the fiery serpents? They were the wrath of God manifest. They were the punishment of God. Serpents had been sent among the people to punish people. And on the pole was not an angel. On the pole was not a sword or some symbol like that. On the pole was literally the thing that was harming them. The punishment. The pole had the wrath of God on it. God's wrath. The devil isn't actually mentioned. He's kind of alluded to in the fact that it's snakes. But it's the wrath of God that's, that's punishing them, and it's the wrath of God on the pole. Who was on Christ's cross? Well, the answer is clearly Christ. Christ is on the cross. He is nailed there. Um, who when the last day comes, will carry out the wrath of God against the world. Well, it is surprising to many who view Jesus as merely Jesus, meek and mild, 
But when you go through the New Testament, you discover that when the wrath of God falls upon the earth for the final time, it is our Lord Jesus Christ himself who is prosecuting that wrath. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's taking the vengeance here? It's Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus. He is revealed from heaven with with angels and fire. He is taking vengeance upon the world on the last day. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So our Lord Christ brings the hurt. Our Lord Christ brings the judgment. And he himself, when he talks about that day, describes it in these terms in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ from his very own mouth says, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. And then jumping to 41, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is the judgment, and who is seated on the throne making the judgment? It is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is saying to the righteous, welcome to God's paradise, He is saying to the wicked, into the fire made for the devil and his angels, it is Christ our Lord who is judgment on that day. But on the day of the cross, who is on that cross? It is the very one who will sit as judge. It is the one who will bring his judgment. Today, he is on the cross, he himself. The very object that God will work through in wrath today is the very object of God's grace. And if you look to the cross, and the look from Numbers seems to equate to having faith, 
if you look to the cross, you will be saved eternally. You will have eternal life. But what is on that cross is Christ who will be the judge. Just like the serpents were the judgment of God, they were the wrath of God, but now they're on the pole. So Christ, which will be the judgment of God, is today the invaluable, absolutely eternally worthy payment for our sins. The wrath of God is on the cross. It is God's holy nature we have offended. It is God we must pay the ransom to. It is God whose worthiness is infinite. The debt is infinite. The only payment that can be made to a holy God must be infinite. God the Son is worthy and the payment is made. But make no mistake, the payment is to God. Now, God is love. God loves his elect. He loves his son. God so loves the world, as we just heard. That is not an opposite to God hates sin and sinners. As someone who has been a marriage counselor for three and a half decades, I can assure you it was amazingly eye-opening when I realized love and hate are not polar opposites. When, when a couple would come in and they would really hate one another and you could watch them get out of the car from the office window and they couldn't get out of the car without shouting at each other and you hope there was no sharp objects in the office because they'd kill each other, uh, there was a lot to work with there because hate and love are not opposites. You want to know what the opposite of love is? Absolute indifference. If a couple got out of the car and they were very civil to one another but fairly cold but very polite, I knew I had absolutely nothing to work with because you can hate somebody you love. Trust me, if you've been married for more than two years, you got that one down. God hates sin and sinners. God also loves sinners. God doesn't love sin at all. God is fully just. And in his love, God has made a way for him to be repaid. God has provided the sacrifice. God has taken the very one who will be the wrath of God on the last day to be salvation for us. But make no mistake, the substitution is being paid because God is being paid. A righteous God must be just, as well as the justifier of sinners. That's not my line, that's Paul. And that is what is happening on the cross. God even gives faith to make it happen. There is, there is no more beloved passage of Scripture in all the, the Bible for Christians than John 3.16, and that's true for us Calvinists as anybody else. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The only sticking point here between us and the rest of the church is that the whosoever is whoever has faith in Jesus, and the scripture has uh, a little bit more to say about that. If you go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and you go to 
verse uh, 8 through 10, you read that, I didn't mark this one, so give me a moment. Uh, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, predestined for us before the foundation of the world. I didn't get there. How'd I do? Okay. Um, faith is a gift. But anyone who is given faith by God, anyone who looks to the cross, because that's the physical act of faith, will be delivered for eternal life, but not everyone has faith. And the rest of the church screams bloody murder and says, that isn't fair. God gives faith to those who have faith. Not everybody has faith. Uh, How can that be what the Bible teaches? Let me take you back again to Numbers chapter 6, Numbers 21, and let me read for you again verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now, when did that happen? Well, it happened before verse 7 through 9, where the people turn to Moses and say, please be our mediator, and he seeks God, and God gives the pole. We are told that many people die before the pole is ever made. But what about those folk? How can God give a means of grace that if you look to the pole and live, yet there are all these people who die before he gives it? Is God unfair? Did God have to give the pole to anyone? God is responding in grace, and he's making a distinction. If you're dying, and the last thing you hear is the smelting of the bronze to make the pole, guess what? You didn't have a chance here, but God is being gracious to whom he will be gracious. The same is true for whosoever has faith. Faith is a gift of God. But it is faith in Christ who is the wrath of God for the world, but is the grace of God for us. Substitutionary atonement is what is taught in Scripture. And you should be glad about that. Because if it's not true, then the devil is legitimate. It means that the kingdom of darkness is a legitimate kingdom. It has a right. It is good in its way. And there is nothing in Scripture that gives to the devil legitimacy. God does what he wills with all people. He works his work through all things happening. But The fire is made for the devil and his angels. That is the wrath of God ultimately falling on them. Hell isn't primarily made for men. It's made for the devil and his angels. And why is it made for them? It is made for them because they are illegitimate. Because they are occupiers of the world. Evil is evil and there is nothing good about it. And if you hold to the view that Lewis does and some of the other fathers do you kind of have to tip your hat to the devil and say uh, the, the queen actually is the headsman of the emperor beyond the sea. The devil literally is God's willing servant and is good in his fear.
And that is not true. Sin is sin. Evil is evil. God delivers us from himself because he loves us, but he also hates sin and sinners. This is the grace of God. And Jesus said it. He said, when you look at the cross, when you look to me, it's like the bronze pole being lifted up. The bronze pole has the wrath of God on it, but for you it's deliverance. Substitution is being made. Christ, the conqueror, is Christ, your deliverer. Thanks be to God.